title for you today is A Warning Against Idolatry. A Warning Against Idolatry. As is our practice, we get our title, our points, our lesson from the text itself, but sometimes the text introduces to us ideas that are unfamiliar or unclear, and I think on occasions such as that, it's helpful to spend a little bit of time clarifying a few things because such is the text this morning. For example, how often do we use the word idolatry in the course of a week? Or how many times do you use the phrase carved image? Not often. My guess is not often at all. And you might even say, but Joe, that was then and this is now. And you would be correct. That was then and this is now. Nevertheless, just because idolatry that existed in ancient history isn't common now doesn't mean that idolatry has altogether become uncommon. Did you get that? Just because the way idolatry was practiced then is uncommon now doesn't mean that idolatry has become uncommon. Let me give you a working definition of idolatry. It's going to come up on the screen here. Idolatry happens when we give glory and honor to something or someone other than God, expecting joy and satisfaction as a result, whether mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual. I'm going to read this again. This is not a direct quote from anything. This is just something that I threw together. Idolatry happens when we give glory and honor to something or someone other than God, expecting joy and satisfaction as a result, whether mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual. An idol, therefore would be that person, place, or thing that we believe to be our source of satisfaction. Again, you'd be right. It isn't now as it was then, but we're still made for worship, you and I. And whether we like it or not, we will worship. Whether we confess to it or not, we will worship. Because God has made us to worship. And therefore, the issue is not whether or not we will worship, but what we will worship or who we will worship. Harold Best, in his book, Unceasing Worship, says this, and I quote, Nobody does not worship. Nobody does not worship. Church, God has made us to worship. He has made us to seek and to praise and to popularize and to adore what we believe, say amen if you're listening, what we believe will save us, help us, grow us, you name it. When you take idolatry and you remove it from the idea of a particular form, carved images, for example, and you just have a working definition of anything or anyone that you believe will give to you what it is you want, when we work off of a simple definition like that and we forget about Moloch and Baals, etc., Asherah poles, we forget about all that stuff. When we work off of that definition, that general definition, suddenly it becomes eerily clear. We are all susceptible to idolatry. 
Why is this important? It's important because there is no God who deserves our adoration, our love, our faithfulness, and our praise like Jehovah God does. And what's more, as sinners, we seek and pursue these satisfactions that are confined for us in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and other places. And we do it because we've been made to worship, but I want to quote Augustine here from his Confessions, which is his autobiography. He calls it Confessions. If you're looking for a wonderful piece of literature to read, I recommend it to you. And he says this, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Church, who among us can identify to that? Who among us can say, man, I was restless until my relationship with God taught me that the rest I always looked for here, there, in them, in them, in them, or in that, that rest I was searching for, I found in my God. Well, our text this morning is going to help us explore this idea of idolatry and the importance of knowing who we worship and why. I want to share with you three simple points. The warning, the consequence, and the antidote. The warning, the consequence, and the antidote from verses 15 and following of Deuteronomy chapter 15. So, chapter 4, verse 15. So, beginning in chapter 4, verse 15, we're going to look at our first point, which is the warning. If you look at it with your eyes, again, I'm going to read aloud just to get us going. He says, Moses does, therefore watch yourselves very carefully. How should we watch ourselves? Very carefully, since, here's the purpose clause, watch yourselves very carefully. Why? Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you from Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly, making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, male, female, animal, winged bird, creepy thing on the ground, fish in the likeness of fish. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all people under the whole heaven. A couple of things I want to share with you under this text, chapter 4, verses 15 and following. First, I want you to note the warning. First of all, I want you to note the warning. He says right there in verse 15, therefore, Watch yourselves very carefully. Church, the reason for this, Moses says, is because God didn't physically appear when he delivered his word to his people. They only heard him. There was a fire and a cloud. There was no form of God, however. They only heard the voice. They did not see any form. And the concern that God has placed on Moses and that Moses is delivering to the people and indirectly to us, say amen, is that we, they, and we would try to attach a form to the voice coming out of the fire. Let's face it. We like to put form to our faith. Amen? We like to put form to our faith. We might even put it like this. 
I really hate that pump. We might put it like this. Seeing is believing. Ever heard it? You may have probably even, may have probably even, well, that's a lot of words. You probably have even used that phrase, seeing is believing. And the reality is, as human beings living in a three-dimensional environment, seeing is believing for us, isn't it? Which is why faith is so radically important and why God did not reveal himself because John chapter 4 tells us that God is spirit. God is not contained or containable like we are in a three-dimensional environment. And therefore, the warning comes, watch yourselves carefully since you did not see a form that you do not decide the voice needs a form. Watch yourselves. Second, note the human tendency. Note the human tendency. And, and, and this is just a continuation of our, fir- of our first idea. I, I, I think by way of, of inference, we gain this from the text. There's almost an expectation of us as human beings on the part of God that we will become infatuated with the created world. Not this animal, not that animal, not the fish, not the creepy things, not the flying things. You can't make any... Well, what about this form? No! Okay, okay. So nothing in that regard, but what about... But what about the sun? What about the stars? Can we worship those? Because, you know, I I read in the newspaper one day that that since I'm a Leo, so funny. We laugh when when the truth hits us in between the eyes, right? Well, you know why I behave like that? It's because I'm a cancer. And the reality of the matter is the higher scrolls mean nothing. They mean nothing. And the stars are where they are because God put them there. And you were born when you were born because God said sovereignly that you would be born at that time. We didn't pick our parents. We didn't pick the hospital we were born into. We didn't pick the socioeconomic standing that we were born into. We didn't pick the color of our skin. We didn't pick our talents. We think we have control over all these things. But the reality of the matter is is when you start to quiz yourself about these matters, you realize that God's got more control over your life than you think. And our tendency is to find something that we can say, that will be my God. You know why it's that way? You know why I feel this way? You know why I don't love this person and I love that person? Because the moon was out of alignment last month. The reality of the matter is, this happens constantly. We see today in 2022 more of a tendency toward that than we do a tendency toward the other thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with environmentalism. We should take care of the creation that God has given to us. But when 99% of environmentalists are atheists, their God is the universe, the earth, the sea, the trees. Now, should we take care of the creation? Unquestionably, absolutely, yes. But we don't take care of the creation because it is mother nature. By the way, have you ever noticed how atheists make everything maternal? Why can't can't it just be nature? Why is it mother nature? The issue for me is not one of 
is nature important? The issue for me is, is nature the important? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. In addition to the nature in which we live, what about the universe? Billions of stars in our Milky Way galaxy, and now there are additional uh, angles, pictures, since the Hubble has been done up by another telescope that is actually in space now. The photographs are absolutely amazing, and some people say it, and they go, wow, what an amazing accident. Or not. Or our design is the result of an incredible designer. What's amazing, church, is how humanity has the tendency to appreciate the gift over the giver. What's amazing, church, is how humanity has the tendency to love the creation over the creator. Let me quote a scripture to you. It's found in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. In Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul says, Claiming to be wise, they, unbelievers, became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Don't we have a tendency? Don't we have a tendency? What's an idol? An idol is something that you believe will give you the joy and satisfaction mentally, emotionally, physically, or spiritually that you desire. And aren't we all dealing with idols today? Raymond Brown, in his commentary on Deuteronomy, gives us this short sentence. Idols are God substitutes. Idols are God substitutes. Now, when we talk about that in today's day and age, I want to share with you just three ideas that I think are incredibly common today in regards to idolatry. Three things I'm going to share with you. I think they're on the screen. The first is narcissism. This would be the worship of self. It's all about me, it's all about myself, it's all about I, it's ego, ego, ego. This is the belief that I am all that matters. Narcissists can't see anyone's benefit in anything. Everything that a narcissist does, they do because they're going to get something out of it. You know when you're in a relationship with a narcissist. It's a horrible relationship. You always give, but you never get and even when you do get, it's only a means to an end because a narcissist doesn't think beyond themselves. They're self-centered, they're self-interested, and they're self-serving. Do we have narcissistic tendencies, church? Do we have narcissistic tendencies? Yes. You know how we know? We know by this clear command of Jesus himself. Deny yourself and follow me. I hate that pump. We got to do something about that pump. It's cold in here, though. <sighs> Deny yourself and follow me. I can't drop great lines if right when I'm about to drop the, the hook, it's... 
Deny yourself and follow me. Everyone has a God complex. Every single one of us. We all have a tendency to one degree or another, women are worse than men. This is statistically proven. Spicy. I'm swinging, swinging for the fence. Jenny, did you laugh at that? Was that, was that a laugh? That was a pity laugh, wasn't it? No, I'm kidding. We all, men, women, children, every one of us has a tendency towards self-interest to such an extent that Jesus says, you can't be in the God business. If you would follow me, the first thing you must do is deny yourself. Men, women, children, you've got to realize that you've got to get out of the God business and I'm your God. You are not allowed to have any other gods. But our world is full of narcissists. And not only is our world full of narcissists, but our world congratulates them by taking people who have zero talent like Kim Kardashian and giving them advertisements that or advertisers who will praise them and give them $6 million for showing pictures of their butt. Narcissistic environments that we live in have taken the form of a female, for example, and made it an idol. Oh, we don't do idolatry like it anymore. Are you kidding? Nothing is new under the sun. We are doing it today. We do it over social media now, and we justify it because an advertiser is sponsoring it. Not only do we deal with narcissism today, but we deal with hedonism. We also deal with hedonism. What's hedonism? Hedonism is the belief that pleasure is the most important experience. Pleasure is the most important experience. If who you date, if what you eat, if whether or not you read your Bible, if whether or not you pray, is all motivated by what you think will make you happy, then you're a hedonist. I will do this if it makes me happy. There's no regard for what God says. If God says, don't do it, we we don't even pay attention to that. I'm gonna do this because it makes me, what's the word? Happy. It brings me pleasure. If that is your MO, if you do what you do or don't do what you do because of pleasure, you're a hedonist. Now, I don't know anybody who turns on the stove and goes and puts their hands on it. That's not what we're talking about. Within reason, church, what we're talking about is the tendency that we have to disobey God's clear order because this thing over here is promised to make us feel good. We all have a little bit of a hedonistic tendency in us. And of course, biblically, it's okay. Paul says, when we're hungry, we eat. We take care of our bodies, for example. Yeah, of course. It's not wrong if we enjoy life. We should enjoy life. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, there's nothing more for a person than to enjoy their work and to enjoy their life because eventually they're going to die. So while we're alive, we should take pleasure in our life. Amen? We should take pleasure in our friends and in our family and in the things that God has given to us to enjoy, but never at the extent that they compete with God's commands. If God says, do not do this, and we negotiate a way around his command to do it anyway, we're doing it because we're hedonists, and that is an idolatrous mentality. 
narcissism, hedonism, and then, of course, there's sex and sexuality. We have reached an out-of-control trend and current in regards to sex and sexuality today. In his book, Strange New World, Carl Truman writes something that I think is somewhat insightful. Listen to what he says. It has come in certain areas, such as that of homosexuality and transgenderism, to require the positive repudiation of traditional sexual mores to the point where belief in or maintenance of such views has come to be seen as ridiculous. Ridiculous! I'm a heterosexual man who has a healthy relationship with his queen. And I am not apologetic for it. And what Carl Truman is saying is the current and trend in regards to sex and sexuality is so strong today that any homosexual or transgender individual or group sees that as completely ridiculous. Because the job of their mentality is worship. You will not accept me. You will praise me. You will not tolerate me and share the room with me, you will give me the building. There will be no end. And you know there will be no end when the people who are signing into law legislation that 10 years ago they completely disagreed with. We can't rely on policy and procedure to protect the morals that God has passed down to us. There is an idolatrous mentality in our culture today when it comes to sex and sexuality. Carl Truman continues. He says, if the individual's inner identity is defined by sexual desire, I am Joe, I like to have sex with men, for example. Wow, that was a horrible, that could be cut out, right? <laughs> Hypothetically, let's say there's a guy over here, John Doe. Remind, mark, time mark this. <laughs> John Doe likes to have sexual relations with Sam Doe, a guy, another guy, homosexual relationship, okay? This is what he's saying. If the individual's inner identity is defined by their sexual desire, then he or she must be allowed to act out on that desire in order to be an authentic person. You see, this is what... I'm a heterosexual male, okay? As a heterosexual male, sex is something that I do with my wife, okay? But if my wife, God forbid, was killed in a car accident, I would not cease to be a heterosexual male. But what Carl Truman is saying is that the sex idolatry is so strong today that we have to allow and accept and praise and congratulate the behavior of the transgender and homosexual community because if we do not allow them to engage openly in the behavior, then we're denying their authentic personhood. It's not something that they do. 
It's who they are. And this is what we've been led to believe today. Sexuality is not something that we do. It's not something that is a part of who we are, but something that we do, something we can live without. No, it's something you must tolerate, accept, congratulate, and praise because it's what makes me who I am. And who even knows what that is anymore? The lines have been so completely blurred, it's just become one large orb of sexual idolatry. We can do this in healthy situations too. An easy example of a good thing becoming a bad thing because it becomes a God thing. You might want to write that down. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. A good example of that might be something like marriage. When a single person essentially operates in this way, I cannot be happy. Unless I'm married, marriage now is your idol. You are telling God, if you do not give me a spouse, I cannot be happy. Now, let's say hypothetically that you do get married, and you move on a little bit. Now, two sexually healthy people eventually will have children, correct? But let's say you don't have children yet. Diami and I, we had to go to a fertility specialist. In the end, God blessed us, and we ended up having a child naturally. Praise his name. But before that, there was a lot of anxiety in our, in, our, in our life and in our future because we actually had to go to a fertility specialist. And even though we didn't have to go farther than the consultation, we were pursuing other avenues of opportunity because we wanted a family. That doesn't mean that we were idolatrous, but if you can't be happy without children, children are your idol. Let me go a little farther and say this. Let's say that you're wanting to be married and God blesses you with a marriage. And then once you're married, you're like, okay, I got happy for five minutes, but now I need children or I won't be happy. And God blesses you with children. And then you stop coming to church because it's hard to come to church when you have children. Children are your idol. If your life the high or the low, is completely dependent upon your children. God is not your God. Your children are your God. If you can't enjoy a holiday or a Monday morning, if you can't come to worship with a clear mind and a clear heart because your kid is this, that, or the other thing, God is not your God. Your children are your God. Now, I'm a parent. And I think about my kids constantly, don't you? But there's a difference between being a healthy parent and forsaking the God that you prayed to for this thing after he gives you the thing. That's idolatry, church. And how many of us know someone who prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and God gave it to him and five minutes after he gave it to him, They said, God who? Can't find him anywhere anymore. Not within a mile of the altar that they were so quick to kneel at when they wanted the thing. Church, by definition, that is idolatry. 
Now, I have some more thoughts and notes here, but out of the interest of time, I want to skirt forward, and let's go to the consequence. We talked about idolatry. That's the warning, the warning against idolatry. Can you, can you click it to like 75 or so now because I, everybody's shivering? Except, except Alex. Alex is like, this is amazing. I think it's amazing too, but thank you. I just wanted, I just wanted you to see what your money paid for. So we talked about the warning. Let's go to the second part, which is the consequence, and I'm going to pick up the pace here just a little bit. If you look at verse 25 with me, please, it says this. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act according corruptly by making a carved image in this form of anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land and that you, uh, that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live in it, but will be utterly destroyed, verse 27, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone. Now I want you to note the conditional clause. That happens in verse 25 because it's, a, it's an important clause. He comes out and he says, when you father children and children's children. Before we get to the conditional clause, can I just make a quick observation? Isn't it funny how Jews raise Jews and Muslims raise Muslims, but Christians are kind of like, I'm going to let them decide? What kind of stupid nonsense is this? That's not the way it works. On January 15th, we're going to take Angel with his parents, and we're going to stand here on the stage, and we're going to dedicate him to the Lord. And we're going to dedicate him to the Lord because we're a covenant community. And though he has to make his own profession of faith and place his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior, what we are doing in that matter is we are saying, God, put your hand on him and help us to raise him in the admonition and instruction of the Lord. Now, hypothetically, just allow me a little bit of latitude here. Uh, I get a phone call from Ashley who says, uh, Kenny's beating me to a pulp every Saturday night. And he's not living in the faith at all whatsoever. He and she are part of this covenant community. And as a design of our relationship... We're going to work that out because my goal is God's goal. God's goal is their health. If their family is healthy and whole, then their children will come up in the Lord. And in the long run, should they forget it, they will return. Now, every single individual has to place their own faith in Jesus Christ. No one is saved through their grandmother's faith. And there are exceptions to the rule. There are good people who have done a great job as parents and their kids don't know the Lord. And we think so hard upon Luke chapter 15, that prodigal son, when Jesus says, when he came to his senses, he said, Father, I have embarrassed you and I've sinned against you and against heaven. We pray for that repentance. We pray for the prodigals to come home. 
Amen? But generally speaking, this text tells us something. If you're a believer, when you have children, you raise them as believers. This is what we ought to do. And if we have failed, listen to me, church, if we have failed, today's a great day to start. Don't put it off because you blew the first five years or the first 10 years or the first 20 years. Find a door of opportunity. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to give you the opportunity and reach out for the soul of your child. It's nonsensical to me when people come here and they serve in this way and they serve in that way and they share the gospel with people and their kids don't know the Lord. Now, I don't want you not to serve, but never forget this. Church, your first ministry, my first ministry, will always be to your family. Love your family well. Jesus did what he did so that you would not have to sacrifice the blessings of God for the salvation of sinners. That's what Jesus did. So you should not have to lose your marriage to serve others. You should not have to compromise your parenting relationship with your kids so that you can serve others. You should always put your family first. Once that is happening, Moses says, when you father children and children's children, okay, you got a legacy now. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You've got a legacy now. He says this, look, he goes, you've grown old in the land. Listen to what he says, if you act corruptly. If you act corruptly. I want you to note this conditional clause. God has already said so many beautiful things to the people. He's been merciful. He's been supportive. He's been protective. He has guided them through these challenging years. But even still, here we see his faithfulness to justice. I will bless you. I will love you. I will guide you. I will direct you. And I will plant you. And you will be healthy. You'll have grandchildren. And you'll have a legacy. Praise God. And God goes, but if you ever forget me, don't think I won't visit consequences on you. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Are we to continue sinning that grace may abound? By no means. First, God warns against idolatry with a pledge. And the pledge, Moses says, is like this. I call heaven and earth as a witness against you today. That is the beautiful creation in which we live and with which we are so often enamored and which was here before we were and will be here long after we are gone is a witness against us that we should not practice idolatry. Second, God warns against natural disasters. Sorry, not natural, national. God warns against national disasters. The people are warned here in this verse that they will be scattered among the peoples. The people are warned of a national disaster, and it would be inevitable if they were to choose a foreign god, if they were to practice idolatry, if they were to neglect the covenant that God made with them and they with him. On another level, I can't help but to imagine what might happen to America 
if this continues, the principles on which this country was founded and for which the church ought to stand with resolution and courage. We are in a place we probably would have never imagined being just 10 years ago. But I'm also concerned for the diluted gospel with which the church in America seems to be so infatuated. We've got celebrity pastors and, 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 and popularity contests among those that preach the gospel so that the gospel is secondary to their style of ministry. Listen, this isn't another kind of sin. This is idolatry too. The church is guilty of idolatry. We are forsaking the truth of God. We are forsaking the morals of God. We are forsaking the word of God because we believe that we can be happier without them if we do this thing or we follow this guy. And Moses is saying, in a situation like that, judgment is inevitable. Third, God warns against false religion. In other words, you look at verse 28. It's amazing. He says in verse 28, when I scatter you among foreign nations because you are being idolatrous and I discipline you and push you out of the land that I've promised you, when you go to these foreign nations, look at verse 28, there you will serve God's, God's of wood and, and stone. It's like God is saying, I'm going to give you what you want. Oh, you want to practice idolatry? I'll show you what idolatry has in store for you. These gods, by the way, it says at the end of the verse, neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. They are just blocks of wood. Again, be careful what you wish for. Church, God is for his people. He loves his people. But he in no way will excuse sin, especially as we're learning this morning the sin of idolatry. Fourth, God promises faithfulness in their unfaithfulness. God promises faithfulness in their unfaithfulness. Look at verse 29. After all this hot and heavy language, the word of God says this in verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord. Your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter day, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice because the Lord your God is what? Merciful. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Doesn't that sound familiar? He will not leave you. Isn't that what our Lord promised us? I will not leave you or forsake you. Church, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And we may imperfectly keep our end of this bargain. Well, I'm not going to say may. We keep this end of the bargain imperfectly. Amen? We sin. We fall short. 
We continue to aim to be the men and women that God has called us to be. And when we fail, and when we have seasons of doubt or seasons of disobedience, we have a beautiful promise here. If we return to the Lord with our heart and soul, he's merciful, and he will restore us. Even in their unfaithfulness, God will honor his covenant with the people of Israel. Even in our unfaithfulness, God will honor his covenant with us. Amen? What a great promise. Grace will always win out over sin. I don't know where you are in your life right now. And I don't care how ugly it is. Possibly I don't want to know how ugly it is. It's not relevant. What I can tell you is this. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. God loves you. And he has what is required for your life that is in the wrong to be placed in the right. This leads me to our final point. And that's our antidote. Talked about the warning. Talked about the consequence. And now let's quickly wrap up with the antidote. This is found in verses 32 and following. If you look at that section of scripture again, it says very quickly, for ask, ask now of the days that are past. Look into the annals of history. Look into history which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. How far should I go back? Go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Go all the way back in history as far as you can go. Oh, also, ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened. Obviously, the answer is no. What God has ever spoken to their people like God has spoken to his people? The answer is none because there is no other God. The antidote to idolatry, church, is knowing God. If you know God, you won't have the gall or the guts to worship any woman, any man, any idea, any philosophy, any you name it. Because in view of who God is and in view of what God has done, you can't possibly imagine robbing him of the worship that is due to him to give it to something or somebody else. This is a long one. Okay, first, consider what God's done. Consider what God's done. Are you considering, church, you, you, you and I, are we, are we considering the work of God in creation and in our lives? I love what Psalm 8 says, when I consider the heavens and the stars that your hands have made, who am I that you think of me? That's who our God is. Isaiah 40 says not only did he place the stars into the heavens, but he calls them by name. We had enough trouble with Hannah, Irene, and Sarah, Elizabeth. God has named the stars. And as amazing as that is, Andre, God is thinking of you today. Anna, God is thinking of you today. 
And that should tell us something like, wow, that our God is so transcendent, so awesome. And yet, he cares for me. And he thinks of me. Look back into history as far as you can go. Search the heavens from the east to the west. Can you find a God like ours? No, we can't find a God like that anywhere. Second, don't only consider what God's done. Secondly, consider who God is. Look at verse 35. Verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, and there is no other beside him. Now, you might say, I don't know what you're getting there. I I want you to look at this verse. Okay, number one, when we talk about who God is, I want you to note two things. He is sovereign, and he alone is God. First of all, look at verse 35. To you it was what? To you it was what? Church, that's revelation. That's revelation. This is God's sovereignty. This is God choosing to whom he reveals himself. This is not saying God decided to be a God to you because you were so insightful and so wise and so creative at the way that you deduced the sun and moon and stars weren't gods, but that Jehovah alone was God. No, that's, that sounds a little ludicrous, doesn't it? What we're learning from verse 35 is that they know God is God because God revealed himself to them. To you it was shown. To you it was shown. And secondly, to you it was shown that you might know, K-N-O-W, you get that knowledge, that you might know that he is God and that there are no other gods beside him. Not only is this a, a thing of revelation, but the idea being that when that revelation takes place, it dispels of any curiosity at all whatsoever. We cannot have Jesus on a shelf with Buddha. We cannot have Jesus on a shelf with Mary, as amazing and incredible as she is told to be. She is not to be worshipped. A santo, bracelets and elephants turned around with money in their mouth. No. Candles? No, no, no. God has revealed himself so that we would not participate in idolatry. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Isaiah 46, verse 9. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. Third, consider what God is like. Consider what God is like. I want you to look at verses 37 and 38 now. Because he loved your fathers and those, excuse me, and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Consider what God is like. He keeps his covenant. 
He delivers his people. He protects his people. He works miracles in their midst. If these thoughts are in our minds and in our hearts, how can we stray after some other God? The knowledge of God is the antidote to idolatry. Say that again. The knowledge of God is the antidote to idolatry. But you know what Hosea 4.6 says? Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. What don't they know? This God saying, they don't know me. The knowledge of God is the antidote to idolatry. You want to be stronger in your life? Read your Bible, get to know God. You want to be more, you want to have more endurance and perseverance in your life? Read your Bible, get to know God. You want to have greater strength? You want to resist sin and temptation in your life? Read your Bible, get to know God. Focus on God, get to know him. Why? Because the knowledge of God is the antidote to idolatry. Let it not be said of the members of First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge that they are destroyed of a lack of knowledge. To close, church, let me say this. May God help us to know him deeply. And may he help us to know him deeply in a way that when we walk into a room, people say God's with them. <laughs>